And now if you'll keep those Bibles open and turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter 12 this morning in the book of Hebrews, specifically there at verses 1 and 2. If you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 1285, 1285. And 85. And as we turn there, I want to just kind of draw your attention to some of the themes that has taken place thus far. One of the challenges of preaching a thematic sermon series is that we're jumping throughout books of the Bible and we don't have any context when we do such a thing. When we're preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, the context is very clear to us usually because we handled it the week before. But as we jump here into really the closing themes of the book of Hebrews, we've missed everything that was covered in chapters 1 through 11. And there's a lot going on in chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Hebrews as the author of Hebrews paints for us a picture of who Christ is. The author of Hebrews wants us to have an elevated sense of who Christ is. And so right there in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, you will see how the author of Hebrews, even as we handled it this past Christmas season, is reminding us that Jesus Christ in human form is the exact imprint of the glories of the Father. That He is God. And so even before he begins to talk about how Jesus is greater than all these hosts of people, He's going to say, He is greater than these who have come before Him because He is God. And then He'll move in, in chapter 1, probably scholars and commentaries debate this, but I think it's through the rest of chapter 1, verses 5 through the remainder of that chapter, and then through chapter 5, that the predominant theme of the author of Hebrews is Christ as our prophet. Christ as our prophet. And, and, and he'll begin to draw out for us how Jesus Christ is the best messenger in which God the Father has spoken through. Remember, as it talks about even in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that through many different ways and through many different people, the Lord has spoken to our fathers, but now he has spoken to us by his Son. And so in chapters 1 through 5, it will speak to us about how Jesus is the better Moses. Moses was probably the, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament era. He gives us laws and he gives us declarations and he reminds, of, reminds to us as a people of God the promises of God. And yet, he is a better Moses. And in the... New Testament, the greatest prophet by the words of Jesus himself was John the baptizer. And, and we know much about John the baptizer because he is the closest prophet to the coming of the Lord Jesus and he is preparing the way of the Lord Jesus himself to be ushered onto the scene for his earthly ministry. And the author of Hebrews establishes that even though John the baptizer is a great prophet, the greatest prophet of all those who have come before Christ, Jesus Christ is the better prophet. He is the better messenger. And if we can just take that a step further, in Hebrews chapter 1 through 5, 
we think, well, who is the greatest in our human understanding? Who is the greatest messengers of God? And we would probably answer his angels. Literally, the word that we translate as angels is the Greek term for messengers. And we think about the grand stories of God's messages to his people through the angels, if it be Mary or Zechariah, or if it be the shepherds abiding in the fields. All of these angels that appear for us, and we say, surely their splendor and their righteousness and their beauty is high above all else. And the author of Hebrews goes, no, Jesus Christ is even better than the angels. Well, then in chapters 6 through 11, the author of Hebrews is going to establish that Jesus Christ executes the office of a priest. So not only does he enact himself as a prophet, but he enacts himself as a priest. And you think about the priesthood that we understand throughout the Old Testament. We think about the high priest Aaron, the brother of Moses, how he is the first high priest and he only is allowed to go into the holiest of holy places there in the tabernacle. That he only gets to meet face to face with a living God. And we think about the sacrificial system, how elaborate it is throughout the Old Testament. And we think about all these things, how grand and how splendid they are. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the better priest. In fact, he is the great high priest who lays down his life for his people, who through his blood being shed has made payment for our ransom. He is the ultimate and the final atonement for our sins. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And so you have prophet, you have priest, and then in Hebrews chapter 12 through 14, you have the kingship of Christ. How Jesus is the preeminent, the greatest king and, and that is really displayed for us so beautifully here as we think about how Jesus, even though he dies, even though he's humiliated upon the cross, even though he's dead and buried, he is exalted above every other name, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord, the King of all kings. And in the immediate context of Hebrews chapter 12, we have this idea that he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That Jesus Christ, as he executes the offices of prophet, priest, and king, is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That means that in him and in him alone are we now brought to salvation. And so we think about those theological terms, the active and the passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ is that God Himself would take on flesh in the incarnation, that He would put Himself under the law, and yet He would obey it perfectly. And though He obeyed it perfectly, He would lay down His life in a sinner's death. That is the laying down of his life, the passive obedience. He puts himself under the full wrath of the Father so that he might meet us with mercy and grace and so that the Lord would not treat us as we deserve, but we would be treated as if we had not sinned. 
imputing, taking that righteousness of Christ and giving it to us and taking all of our sins, past, present, and future, and placing them upon Christ at Calvary so that His blood can wash us as white as snow. And it's in that large context of the Gospel that the author of Hebrews pens these two words, or these two verses, rather. And so if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 12, and I hope you do, look at verses 1 and 2 as we read it together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, admittedly, our focus this morning is going to be on the latter portion of verse 2, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because if you were with us last week, we gave an introduction sermon to all of these emotions, struggles, feelings that are quite well known in the Christian life. And last week we spoke of how the Word of God is sufficient to speak to these things. That the Word of God is the best tool that we have to help us persevere through whatever, whatever may lay in our paths. And today, as we allow the Scriptures to tackle our first topic, we're going to look at shame. We're going to look at shame. And why do we need to start at shame? Well, it's simply because we all deal with shame. Either we've been sinned against, and that sin against us has carried uh, or caused us to carry a burden that follows us every day, or we have committed particular sins, and we have carried the shame of those sins that we have committed for years. And we know something about shame all the way back at the very beginning of our Bibles. And so if you keep your Bibles out and turn with me over to Genesis 3, keep your finger there at Hebrews chapter 12, but if you look back at Genesis chapter 3, I want to read for us a, a well-known portion of God's Word, verses 1 through 13 of Genesis chapter 3, which is known to us as the fall of man into sin. And we know in the context of this text is that God has created the world in the span of six days. He has given Adam and Eve their command that they shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know that the serpent in the form of Satan now comes to Eve first to tempt them to fall away from their communion with God. And so Genesis chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, the, the thing I want to draw out to you here in, in regards or concerning shame is the immediate response of Adam and Eve as they eat of the forbidden fruit. And then they hear in verse 8 the sound of the Lord God walking towards them in the midst of the garden. We have to understand that this is a daily ritual for Adam and Eve. They walk and they talk with the Lord in person, in sweet communion. And now that they have sinned, what is their response? It is simply that they hid themselves. Admittedly, even Adam says, I heard you and I was so ashamed of what I have done that I hid myself. And that's a natural tendency, isn't it, when it comes to shame? Either we have been severely sinned against or we have done some sort of sin in which we're carrying the shame and we desire to hide that. We desire to tuck that away so that no one else knows what we are dealing with. And I'll use myself for an example. When I was in high school, I was on the way to school one morning. And I was running late, admittedly, and I was pulled over right in between Dylan and Latta, and I received my first speeding ticket. And, and panic and shame hit me like a brick wall, because a, a, as a 15-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid, with just my day license, what, what did I not want to happen? Well, I didn't want my parents to find out, right? So I devised this plan to, to hide the sin, to hide my shame. I would borrow money from my cousin who was, quite frankly, overjoyed that I would ask him for help to try to keep me out of trouble. I would go immediately after school and I would pay the ticket on the same day of receiving it. I was so quick to the magistrate's office that my ticket wasn't even in the computer, but she took my money anyway. But I thought... I could hide it. I desired to hide it. Not only my sin, but my shame. Nobody other than my cousin will ever know that I was pulled over and that I received my first speeding ticket. Boy, was I wrong in that. Not only does everybody you know and deal and drive by you when you're getting pulled over, but also when you only have a day license, 
The DMV sends letters to your parents telling you that you got pulled over. But, but that feeling, right, of shame, of guilt, of wanting to hide those things, keep those things in the dark that we're ashamed of. We want to hide them away, either what we have done or what has been done to you. And like Adam and Eve, we want to hide our vulnerabilities, our shame, because shame causes us to consider aspects of our story that other people will bring judgment towards. Or other people will see us less than human, we might say, because of what we've done or what has been done to us. And so we tuck those vulnerabilities away. And and suddenly, I think we all know what I'm talking about here. There has been something in our life that we have done or we have been done to that causes us shame. And there's something we have to know about shame. Not only is shame a natural tendency towards sin committed or sins committed against us, but shame is used as a powerful weapon in the hands of Satan. We we need to know that up front. We need to know that shame ushers us into this spiritual warfare where Satan, just as he did with Adam and Eve, begins to tempt us not only to despair, but to tempt us to continue to justify all sorts of behavior and further sins. If you just think back to the story in which we just read, the the shame of guilt of their own sin, and, and used by Satan, causes Adam and Eve to begin playing the blame game, we would say. Adam, what have you done? No, 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 Lord, it wasn't me. It was that woman that you gave me. And so not only is he pointing his fingers to his wife, Eve, but he's actually pointing himself to God. It's your fault, God, that I've sinned. That shame overwhelms him to the point where he begins to point fingers every which way. And Eve does the same thing, doesn't she? She says, no, 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 Lord, it was your creation, the serpent, that caused me to sin. Not only was it Satan's fault, but God, it's your fault. You created the serpent, remember. And and shame takes us in this spiral where where we, we justify the blame game or we justify the, the, the hiddenness of our vulnerabilities and our shortcomings and our sins. And, and this shame not only takes us in a, a spiral, but it begins to, and Satan uses this, he begins to dehumanize us. And he says that the sins that you've committed or the sins that have been committed against you, those feelings that have brought you shame now identify you. That's who you are. Not only is it who you are, but what you are. He begins to say that your shame begins to make theological, make theological conclusions. Not only is it who you are, but what you are, but what you think. What you think about God, what you think about salvation, what you think about your relationship with Him. But it also, Satan will say, that, that your shame makes you less human. You're not worth the same amount of the person next to you. 
Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt shame in such a way that, that the accuser's in your ear and he's saying that pain, that rejection that you feel, you're supposed to feel that way. Because that's who you are. That's what you are. That changes your standing before God. God could never forgive my sins, especially that sin. Or, or God could never love me because of what's happened to me in my past. All these things Satan uses so that shame is not just a momentary glip of time, but it's an enduring trial in which you face day by day, month after month, year by year. It's real. Shame is real, and we have all felt it, and we have felt its effects, and we have felt the vulnerability of even trying to understand why we feel this way, and there's a fear of disconnection in it. There's a fear of disconnection in it because we, we begin to think that if, that if everybody else in the church knew about me, the sins that I've committed or the sins that were committed against me, they will believe that I'm not worthy of being their friend or worthy of being their brother and sister in Christ. You see, what shame does is it, it focuses on self and its guilt. This is what one, one author, I guess we can call her, says about sin. And it's very simplistic, but I think it carries a powerful punch. It says... Shame is the focus on self, and guilt is the focus on behavior. Guilt is saying, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I committed a sin. Shame is, I am a sin. I am a mistake. And that's very simplistic, and I think I would have some, some you know, little quibbles with it here and there, but I think what she's getting to really helps us. The sin that has been committed against me or the sin that I have committed now defines me. Defines my relationship on horizontal measures, my relationship with one another, but also determines or defines my relationship with God. And we have to find some sort of hope in the midst of this struggle with shame. We have to find some kind of hope in the midst of this struggle with shame. How do I deal with my shame? Because if we're honest, we are much like Tamar, David's daughter, crying out after her sinful experience with Amon, her stepbrother. And in a sign of humiliation and shame, she goes, where can I go to remove my shame? Author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, that the, that the way we deal with shame, that where we go to deal with our shame is the cross of Christ. It's the cross of Christ. And before we even begin to think about the cross and its shame, think about the repercussions or the consequences of shame. Think about all the feelings, the emotions, the experiences that shame leads us to. And I'm going to read an exhaustive list from one scholar and theologian in one of his books that he wrote called Rid of My Disgrace. But I want you to catch the gravity of the experience of those who deal with the power, the worst kind of shame. 
the realization of shame. He says that shame brings a heightened sense of self-blame. It brings guilt, embarrassment, anxiety, stress, fear, anger, confusion, interpersonal problems, denial, irritability, depression, despair, withdrawal from society, numbing and apathy, detachment, loss of caring, feelings of isolation and alienation, restricted ability to express emotions, nightmares, flashbacks, headaches, difficulty concentrating, negative self-image, loss of self-esteem, emotional shock or numbness. I'm halfway done. Erratic mood swings, feeling powerless, disorientation, panic attacks, loss of an assurance of salvation, extreme dependency, impaired ability to judge the trustworthiness of others, various phobias, hostility, aggression, change in appetite, insomnia, other sleep disturbances, decreased energy and motivation, and much more. And so when we realize that shame is real, that it impacts the whole man where do we go to deal with our shame? The world will tell you you need a TED Talk. The world will tell you that you need to read the next book or try the next technique. And that's tragic. Because I've read many of those books, and I'll tell you at the end of the day what they're explaining for you to do. Be better. Do more. Fix yourself. And you see the irony in that, don't you? That I'm ashamed of myself, of the sins that I've committed or the sins that have been committed against me. I think less of myself because the sins that I've committed or the sins that have been committed against me. I'm not good enough to handle this situation. That's why I'm in despair. And the world will tell you, buck up, buttercup, and just try more. But the gospel tells you to look to Jesus. Look at verse 2 again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now that alone should give us some unbelievable comfort here. Some unbelievable joy that God himself, Jesus Christ, and here's why the context of Hebrews matters, that God himself, the one who is greater than the angels, the one who is truly God and truly man, he would not only relate to us, but that He would deal with the effects of shame. Because what we see here when we look at the cross, when we look at Jesus Christ enduring the cross, we see Him dealing with the greatest shame that we could ever imagine. Shame that was public in nature, designed even to demonstrate the lack of humanity of the one being tortured. The Romans, Josephus, the great historian, tells us that the Romans called the crucifixion the death of a beast. And he tells us that even Roman citizens would not be crucified because of the dignity that are just belonging to Rome, the empire of Rome had, so they wouldn't even murder their own citizens upon the cross. They would find other ways to put them to death because... The cross was such a degrading death. Nothing was as vile. Nothing brought more shame than the cross. The man hung from the cross would be considered by the Roman Empire to be subhuman, less than. And Jesus Christ experiences this. 
He experiences shame upon the cross. And here is the gospel. That he experiences shame, but he is completely innocent of all sin. Listen to this. Shame is real for Jesus, even though he has no reason to feel guilt or shame. He has not committed a single sin. He has not done anything wrong, and yet he has acted upon in the most severe and shameful ways. He is not even guilty. He has not done anything wrong to place upon himself these things that are being done to him as he is spit upon, as the crown of thorns are placed on his head, as he's pierced in his hands and feet, and as he dies. But he experiences the shame of the cross. And the author of Hebrews says, in the midst of our shame, that is the greatest comfort. The greatest comfort for our shame is that Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, experienced shame and was victorious over it. Was victorious over it. This this phrase, despising the shame, this is what one commentator says. He says, Despising the shame means that Jesus was not controlled by the shame that he endured. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus disregarded the shame of dying by crucifixion and in doing so also took our shame upon himself. Jesus willingly suffered the most shameful death and this exposed the extremity of sin's shameful consequences and the despicable character of of all of our humanly devised shame. And so he endures the cross and he despises the shame. What that means is as he is placed upon the cross of Calvary, he takes our shame upon himself and he shares in it. And he bears it. He takes the wrath of God for our shame and he brings us victory over it. Because what is here within the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12 is the great irony of the cross. You see it, don't you? He endures the cross. He despises the shame. And yet, He is the one seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The irony of the cross is the, the death that was supposed to disgrace the Son of God. The death that was supposed to bring shame upon the Son of God, He faced it with, what does the author of Hebrews says? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. If your Bible translation says anything but, but for the joy, because there are some translations that would say He despised, or He despised the joy, or, or laid apart or aside the joy. No, it was His joy to go to the cross so that He might be exalted and so that your shame might be conquered. Hebrews chapter 12, 2, the SV gets it right. The joy set before Him, the joy set before Him led Him to the cross, led Him to take your shame so, so that he could be seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, what we need to know here, 
what we need to know here is that the author of Hebrews is telling you that in your shame, how to deal with the shame that you feel is to look upon Christ who was dead and buried, who died the public death of shame and vileness and destruction, and yet He was innocent. But because He was innocent, the Father raised Him from the dead and sits Him at His right hand, the place of honor, the place of power. And that's the Gospel. But the Gospel even takes us a step further. And the Gospel tells us that not only does our Lord and Savior sit upon the throne of heaven, but we, by the Spirit of adoption, are made co-heirs with Christ. By the Spirit of adoption, we are made co-heirs with Christ. And immediately, what happens there is that the evil one, Satan, the accuser, begins to whisper in your ear, don't even let Pastor Matt say such a thing. That place of honor could not be yours. God the Father could not forgive you in such insurmountable terms that He would allow you to take place, a sitting place in the, in the heavens right beside Jesus. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. The accuser comes in and says, because of the sins you committed or the sins committed against you, you can never have the place of honor within the heavenly places. But listen to this. You don't even have to turn there. Just listen. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, you put to death the deeds that are in the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, listen, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified in Him. The same imagery that the author of Hebrews establishes here, this humiliation that leads to exaltation in the life of Jesus in chapter 12. It's the same life in which we live. We will feel the humiliation of our shame. But because Christ took our shame at the cross of Calvary, we are no longer defined by it and we no longer have to carry it. Because just like our sins are cast from the east is to the west and to the depths of the ocean floor and remember no more, so is our shame. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we deal with shame, know that your shame does not define you what defines you is the Spirit of the living God who has been given to you by the crucified but living Jesus. And He has made you sons and daughters, co-heirs with your Savior. 
He has given you the heavenly places. And so do not be shamed by circumstances, by people, by crazy worldly ideologies or false wisdom of our age. No, you look upon Christ and you take your shame and say, no, Satan, I have been vindicated, I have been freed, and I am in communion and joy with my heavenly Father because he is the author and the perfecter of my faith and he has called me his and he is mine. That's the beauty of the gospel, beloved. And so why don't we pray together? Father in heaven, we do thank you, Lord, that in Christ uh, we, we do not have to carry the shame of the sins that we have committed or the sins in which have been committed against us. But we can look upon our Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we can see the God-man who has borne our guilt and our shame. And as He was humiliated, even unto death, You have exalted Him above every other name. And that exaltation, that glorification that Christ has experienced is ours because we have the spirit of adoption living within us. And so, Lord, let us turn over our shame to our Abba Father. Let us stand in the mercy and the grace and the victory in which our Lord Jesus brings to us. And when the, and when the accuser, Satan, tries to tempt us to despair, say, so what of it, Satan? I am a child of the King. And I am worthy because He has made me worthy. And I am His. And He is mine forever and ever. And so build up our faith, Lord Jesus. Cast away our shame for the sake of Your Son so that we might walk in the power of freedom in You. Amen.